Hello and welcome to show four of All Back to Bowie's. Uh, well, this is a pretty amazing show because we had... Uh, it's the only show I've done, we've done so far where we had to have two uh, security people in the yurt. Uh, and that was a very exciting beginning. Uh, it's a really... I think... I hope you like the show. I think it's really fun. Um... It was certainly fun presenting it. We had a big full house, uh, I think, because of Nicholas uh, Nicholas Sturgeon's star pulling power. <coughs> I think we also uh, had some fantastic bits. I think John Carnican's um, polemic in this is just brilliant. He's he, he's really on it on Scottish masculinity, um, and also Dan By just does wonderful, wonderful letter, uh, but. Hopefully you enjoy the rest as well, and uh, I think there's some really good highlights in here. So uh, sit back and enjoy show four, Lady Stardust, all back to Bowie's. Hello, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, welcome to the David Bowie yurt. Um, my name's David Gregg. A, yeah, it's fantastic here in the David Bowie yurt on top of David's Manhattan uh, rooftop apartment. He, he had a guest yurt, he invited us, we came back. Um, and um, yeah, we've been uh, uh, having our lovely ramshackle indie ref salons every lunchtime in his yurt. He hasn't turned up quite yet but can you hear if you just close your eyes you can hear I think he's he's having a bit of work done in the kitchen I think um, he's a mad one for the DIY is is Dave um, a so today we have some fantastic guests but before we begin there's a bit of a house rule at, at all back to Bowie's which is that we don't um, we don't ask any of our guests or visitors um, binary questions yes no questions except the one the most important question of all and I'd like to have a snap referendum here in this room about that incredibly important question so ladies and gentlemen do you agree that David Bowie is pronounced Bowie <laughs> Okay, so hold on. Now we have a running tally. Sarah has been keeping a running tally. So we have 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 40. We have got 40. I hope the Electoral Commission aren't involved in this. We have 40 for... Uh, uh, and, and who says uh, uh, no thanks? It's Bowie. Uh, Bowie. Bowie. <laughs> One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty, twenty-one, twenty-two, twenty-three, twenty-four, twenty-five. I, the sad, the sad news for you guys is at the moment I think uh, uh, Bowie is in a massive league. We did have um, a Davo Max option, <laughs> which was um, which was that he could be uh, Davy Jones, but uh, that was unfortunate. I wasn't allowed by the rest of the crew. Okay, so. Um, one other task, we like to get people involved in the show, so what I'd love you to do, because we don't really have time for questions and stuff, we'll, we'll pile through the show, but I do want audience involvement, so we've set every audience a different task every day, that they, which is to finish a sentence. Um, the first day we were discussing the language of Indie Ref, so the sentence was Scotland is like... Dot, dot, dot. Today... Um, one of the themes I want to explore is this binaries and uncertainties and doubt. So the sentence I would like you all to finish and get just a piece of paper. You must all have flyers. People hand you flyers all the time. Back of a receipt. If you don't have a piece of paper, someone at the end of the row will pass down a piece of paper. If you haven't got a pen on you, I'm sure your neighbour will share. We're here in... Social Democratic Scotland, we all we share and pool our resources. Um, if, you could, if you could finish the sentence, 
And you don't have to do this right now. This is during the show. I want you to do this during the show. Um, finish the sentence. My doubt about my side is... Dot, dot, dot. My doubt about my side is... Dot, dot, dot. Okay? So, if you have a think about that throughout the show, um, you can think about it during the next song, which I think is going to be a splendidly binary song in honour of our... A, in honor, in honor of today's special guest, um, uh, and we'll collect them in later in the show. We'll collect all your stuff later in the show. Maybe read some of them out if we've got time. So, without further ado, can I welcome our musical guests today to the stage? Uh, Tommy Mackay, the of the Alex Salmon Gastric Band. Uh, and a. And James White. Please welcome Tommy and James. Hello, how are we doing? Okay. Yes, yes I am Tommy Mackay. This is my uh, comedy partner, Mr. James White. As David said, formerly of the Alex Salmon Gastric Band, but uh, swapping musical differences. And so now we're White and Mackay. Yes. You see where that... Right, anyway, so uh, we're going to start the show off with a nice positive number called Just Say Yes. Thank you. Oh, we got a vote in the referendum We got a lot of meetings and we're going to attend them And if we make mistakes then we'll make an addendum, yeah Stand on our two feet, we can make it on our own. We're gonna tell Westminster we want to be alone. And just say yes, just say yes. From Inverkeelin to Inverness, just say yes, just say yes. We're in the Getty Ut address. Consequences and finally come to our senses. You just get skills from sitting on fences, yeah. From John O'Groats to Echel Fechin, I am running, I am pecking. Got your Claymore? Aye, just check it. Just say yes, just say yes. From Inverkeelin to Inverness, just say yes. Guys, um, that was brilliant. I think if 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 David is still working on the kitchen, he's probably thinking Mick Ronson was uh, in the room with that solo. It was brilliant. A every day at Bowie's, we have a polemic or a provocation, just something a five-minute piece of thought to take us on a different track. Today we've got a fantastic polemic coming from uh, John Carnahan. John Carnahan's. Uh, was a policeman for 30 years and he established the uh, violence reduction unit with Karen McCluskey 
which is a really, really interesting uh, project. Um, and he's going to talk about, if, 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 if Bowie was here, I think the song we would be playing is When You're a Boy. Um, he's going to talk about masculinity in Scotland. So, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome John Carnican. Thank you very much. It always bodes well when an audience applauds before you speak. I like that. Good, a good start. You can keep that up. Um, I'm delighted to be here, um, but I'm a West of Scotland male of a particular age, which means statistically I'm delighted to be anywhere, really. Um, and, th and that's one of the things that the provocation from the West of Scotland means I'm here to pick a fight, uh, uh, which is not the case. I'm, I'm not here to do that. But, but today is the 100th anniversary, if that's the right expression, of the declaration of war for the First World War, the war to end all wars, which didn't, and it's still not the end of all wars. So I wanted to come at that from, think perhaps that's the way we should be thinking about things. So in relation to masculinity, in those days it was quite clear what men needed to do and what we valued about men. They had to be brave and strong and, and courage was a big thing. They had to be the one. You know, the, 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 the scenes are a 10-year-old boy running home to his mum because someone beat him up on the way home from school. And in Scotland, she normally gives him a cuddle and then tells him to get back out and fight his own battles. Don't ever let anybody do that to you. That's what we Scots do. We're very good at that. That's what's expected of men. But in the 21st century, are those things still of value to us? So I've got some, I've got some figures that I had to write down because... Every time I read them, I, I find it difficult to believe them. 90% of school children with behavioural problems are boys. 80% with learning difficulties are boys. 90% of court appearances are boys aged 16 to 24. 84% of suicide victims are men between 16 and 24. And Scotland is one of the highest suicide rates in Europe. Between 2001, at the start of the Afghan war, up to 2010 in the Iraq war, Scottish servicemen lost, we lost 43 Scottish servicemen fighting in those wars. In the same period, 5,624 Scottish men committed suicide. So whatever happens, and my doubt is whatever happens, we have to think about men in a different way, and men need to become part of this discussion. Gender equality is not about feminism. Gender equality is about gender equality. In the newspaper the other day it said, we need to encourage more women onto engineering courses. We need to encourage more women onto chemistry courses at university. We need to encourage more boys to become teachers. We need to encourage more boys to work in nurseries. We need to encourage more fathers to be fathers and be present. The average single parent household in Scotland is 27%. In Glasgow, it's 46%. There's an issue there. Some young men grow up and never, ever bump into a positive male role model in their lives until they get to secondary school, perhaps. And by that time, they've been issued with hormones and they don't really help. When I was in the police and in the VRU, we started a project in, in, in Glasgow supported by the Scottish government um, on gangs called SERVE. And gang fighting there is now an exception rather than a norm. It really worked. It was straightforward and simple. We just asked them not to do it. And we asked them to do something else instead. And straight, that's what happened. And, and we, did, we did change it. But the things that those young men did there in fighting and territorialism, obsessed by respect, those are things that if they were doing that in Iraq and Afghanistan, they would get medals for. So we need to understand what it is you want men to do in the 21st century. What is it you want to do? Now I think, and this is for the guys, I think men over the past 25, 30 years, maybe even more, I think we've been in the huff. Because women have responded very well to the changes. Women have responded to the transitions that are happening and seized it. And we've said, well, if we can't build ships and bang steel and do stuff, we're not doing anything. I mean, why have we no women, why have we no men who are GPs receptionists? I mean, I would like to do that job. I could be really grumpy in there. I could actually. <laughs> I think I'd be fab at that. And I'm going to have a go at that. That's, I'm now retired. Well, I'm, I'm not, I'm semi-retired. But, but that's one of the things I quite fancy doing. That would be a good thing. The other thing I'm going to do as well is I, I'm, I'm going to be a sort of freelance guy who stops people parking in disabled bays. I could do that as well. That's another thing that really annoys me. Um, so for me, the provocation and to, to, to think, and, and this is for everyone in here, this needs to be a discussion that we have in Scotland. It needs to be, what do you want men in the 21st century to do? What is it you want us to be? What is it you value about it? Because it's certainly not fatherhood for lots. 
If you go into Pullman, the Young Offenders Institution, and pick any 10 young men at random and ask them two questions, did you have a positive male role model in life? No, they didn't. Did you witness domestic violence? Yes, they did. And that's an issue for men too, because domestic violence and violence against women and rape is a man's issue. Why are we silent on it? Why are we not speaking about it? Because if we don't fix violence against women, we'll never fix violence. And that's a man thing. So for me, please have the discussion. Have the discussion with your friends. Have the discussion with people you bump into. And if you've any ideas about what it is we should do, what men should be, give me a shout. I'd be really interested. Thanks very much. Thanks very much, John. That was, that was really, that was terrific. Um, that was fantastic and a very interesting uh, with, with, with all of our shows is the way that themes develop as we're going along and it's really clear that the, the another binary another binary that we need to challenge in a way is, is men and women, masculinity and what, what it is um, so today we have a, a very special guest um, who's come to the Bowie Yurt uh, to talk to us We've billed her as Lady Stardust, uh, somewhat cheekily. I hope she doesn't mind. Um, please welcome Nicola Sturgeon. Uh, hello. Um, first of all, thanks so much for coming. You're very welcome. It's a delight to be here. I think this may be the first time I've ever been in a yurt, so it's <laughs> very, very exciting. Um, were you at the opening, uh, the closing ceremony of the Commonwealth Games last night? I was, yeah, um, which is probably why I'm a little bit hoarse and a wee bit tired. I was boogieing with Kylie until uh, quite late last night. Although somebody we're going to hear from later on today was one of the dancers at the closing ceremony. So I think she's probably got more of a, a claim to fame from it than, than I do. It was absolutely fantastic. Uh, do, you, do you feel proud of the Games? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I would imagine... Everybody, certainly everybody in Glasgow feels very proud of what was achieved in the last couple of weeks and I hope everybody across the country feels yeah. proud of it. You know, I always thought the Games would be really good, um, but, I, you know, they exceeded my expectations. Obviously, the sport was fantastic, the organisation was fantastic, but for me, I think the most special thing about it was just the atmosphere mm -hmm. in Glasgow. It was electric, it was fun, people really were enjoying it. So yeah, I'm hugely proud of it. That's great. I think it's interesting, the expectations thing, is that I, I like you, I was a bit kind of, oh no, is this, is this going to go all right? Is yeah. this going to be okay? And I, do you think that's something that we'd, we, is that a Scottish trait? Oh, absolutely. Goodness, we're always uh, waiting to fail, aren't we? And, and not just waiting to fail, uh, we're always waiting to jump on the head of the person who has failed to say yeah. what we would have done differently and what they'd done wrong. It was quite interesting, actually, the contrast between being at the, the opening ceremony and the closing ceremony. There was quite a... The opening ceremony was brilliant. I thought it was mm -hmm. fantastic from start to finish. But amongst the, the, the folk who were responsible for organising the Games, you could feel a lot of tension mm -hmm. that night because they were all, you know praying that it went well and waiting for the possibility of it not going well and people slating it whereas last night was much more yeah, relaxed it was relaxed it yeah. looked like a party it, it just, was a great yeah. party <laughs> and in fact it was called all back to hours wasn't it it was yeah which yeah. i was really happy that they'd yeah. been so inspired by all it back was to down hours. to you absolutely yeah um okay so i guess one of uh, the things i want to talk about today is politics but i want to talk about politics almost um, not in terms of you know what's your policy on this or that, but politics a bit more as a as as a as a job and why you do it. And I, I suppose I would start with when did you first notice politics? Um, I suppose for me it was um, when I was pretty young. I don't really remember exactly the point at which I became yeah. aware of politics and thought I wanted to get involved in politics, but. Generally speaking, it was when I was round about 15 or 16, which makes me sound like a really weird uh, teenager. Um, and, you know, I grew up in Irvine, west of Scotland, mm -hmm. working class background. Thatcher was prime minister. I was surrounded by folk at school, boys and girls, who just seemed to have a kind of sense of help 
hopelessness. Mm-hmm. You know, the unemployment was very, very high. There was a sense then that if you didn't get a job or if you lost your job, I, I remember one of the the strongest feelings of my sort of young life was a, a terror of my dad losing his job because it was a feeling that if that happened to you, that was it. You might mm-hmm. never get another job. So, you know, and, and that started to crystallise in my head as, you know, political thought and political interest, you know, very quickly started to be a question in my mind. This damage, as I saw it, was being done to Scotland by a government that we hadn't voted for in Scotland, and how could that possibly be right? Did you, and so how did you, how did it, that manifest, how did that become activism? How did it become, did I, you, I mean, was I, it conscious that you thought? Oh yeah, it was, yeah. and it, it was actually kind of um, a bit of rebelliousness at the time, and I'll, I'll tell you about that in a second, about why I joined the SNP at the uh-huh. moment I joined the SNP. Um, but I had a modern studies teacher who was not SNP, still not SNP as far as I'm aware, but he encouraged me to think about translating that interest I had in politics Mm -hmm. into doing something about it, and I'll always be really grateful to him for doing that. But the catalyst for me joining the SNP was my English teacher at school, Mm -hmm. who was a Labour councillor down in Ayrshire, and he, he knew I was interested in politics. You know, I grew up in a strongly Labour area, and he made a, an automatic assumption that I was going to join the Labour Party to the point where one day he presented me with the application form and I thought, mm-hmm. to hell with that, I'm joining the SNP. I would have joined the SNP anyway, but that was the, yeah. the catalyst moment for making me you know, phone up, sign on the dotted line. I, and so I imagine the Labour Party are very happy with that uh, teacher now, <laughs> the, the results. Sadly, I don't think he's, yeah. he's with us any longer. No. And, and he was a no, great but, English no, teacher. I know, I, 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 but I think that's interesting. I, but that, that's a slightly contumacious... I like, I like the notion that it begins with a, a jump to the side. Mm. Um, is that something that you have... Cont- does that, is, that, is there something about kind of taking a slight... taking the opposite view that fuels... that fuels... Um, I, I, like, I like a good discussion good argument um i like to test opinions Mm. and have my own beliefs and opinions tested i mean when i was at the age when i did join the snp for younger the younger generation in the snp today i think this can be something that passes them by a little bit when i joined the snp the idea that the snp would ever be in government there wasn't a scottish parliament I, i firmly remember the first SNP meeting I ever went to, and it was back then, uh, political anarchs in the audience will remember that the Herald used to carry a System 3 opinion poll every single month without fail. And the day I went to my first ever SNP meeting, the System 3 poll had been published that morning, and there was huge jubilation because the SNP had gone into double figures in the poll for the first time Uh in a long time. So, you know, back then, the idea that joining the SNP was a route to a career in politics was just, you know, nobody would ever have thought that. And that's true for, if I go around the cabinet table now, all of that generation of uh, politicians who are now running Scotland all joined the SNP at a time when the prospect of doing that was just not there. That's a, that's a very interesting thought because there's, there's something rather comforting about that idea that mm. people who, who had got into politics in the belief that they would never have power find that they do do you think that that will is there going to be a generational shift or do you even notice you talk about the younger members and this referendum is obviously electrifying a lot of young activists across the spectrum do you think what will change if people expect power i think in the snp and i'm not uh, meaning to be disparaging of any young person in the snp or, or any young person getting involved in politics but you know, I, I think, and this, I suppose, is a good thing. It's not, mm-hmm. it's not a bad thing. But you know, we've got a generation of people now getting involved in politics who, who do expect, if mm-hmm. they want to go down that road, to have a realistic prospect of getting elected, mm-hmm. of perhaps holding government office one day. Now, yeah, that's a thoroughly yeah. positive thing, but it's a- and very of course in a Scottish to, Parliament, which again a is Parliament, a generational which, thing. It didn't it, exist. Previously. Exactly, it didn't exist, and it wasn't on the horizon when I was first getting involved in, in politics. But I suppose what it does mean about you know, my generation of politicians in the SNP is that we, we came into this purely out of conviction and a belief in what we were doing. It wasn't driven mm. by a sense that we would hold power and, and wield power one day. 
I was thinking about this as a as a writer. I know you're a fan of Borgen. Yes. Um, it is fiction, though. I have to keep reminding yeah. myself of that. Um, and one of the things that interested me about that is it's writing about politics. And I, I, writing about politics from a point of view of, of, of a character and fiction. When I was thinking about it, I thought, well, if I was writing the Deputy First Minister of Scotland, what would, I, what would be in my mind? And I suppose one of the first things I thought was, what's the craft? I'm always interested in what the craft of a job is. What's the craft of being... Um, of being a politician, what's the, what makes, what are the different skills or pieces that make There's it no, up? And that's quite a difficult question to answer because different politicians will bring uh-huh. different skills to the job, and there's no single skill or talent or ability that that you need. I mean, I if young people say to me, "I want to be a politician," how do I go about it? I will always start by saying, "Follow a belief. Don't do right. it because you think there's a career there. If if a career comes out of it." all good and well, but don't go into it from that perspective. You know, you need to you need to have an ability to communicate. I think mm. we, particularly in the television age, if you don't have the ability to sum up often quite complex arguments mm-hmm. in a simple and accessible way, you won't get very far in modern politics. You need to have a thick skin. You need to have the ability mm. to take criticism and not allow it to, you know, set you back too much. You, you tweet... I, I tweet too often, and <laughs> sometimes. I, I think. I, well, I like your tweets because you're because t- you, you you have that slightly rare thing in a politician that your tweets seem real. I mean, they are real. Yeah. Sometimes too real. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I, I was one of these people that took a little bit of convincing. I can't remember how many years ago it was that I joined Twitter, but I took quite a lot of convincing that it was a sensible thing to do. And then when I did decide to start tweeting. I, I decided it was, it was a very deliberate decision. I was always going to do it myself because yeah. if I ever, you know, got into trouble on Twitter, I wanted it to be my mistake, not somebody that was tweeting on my behalf. So I've I've continued with that, and yeah, it's I enjoy it. It's a really good do way you, of getting across to people. Do, do you communicate with people? You do. Yeah, I mean, not. I don't reply to every single person who tweets me no. far far from it you, you couldn't possibly um it, twitter moves so quickly that you know somebody tweets you and then you know 10 minutes later it's gone and disappeared into the ether but i do try to keep an eye on it and pick up on things that i should respond to so i've responded to a lot of constituent cases uh-huh. on twitter because if somebody chooses to get in touch with that way then you know they they deserve a response so yes i, I do try to communicate but I've, I've tried not to create an expectation that that is the best way to contact me. If you want to contact me about yeah. a serious issue, Twitter's probably you, not the best way of doing it. If, do, you get, do you get abuse on Twitter? Yes. Do you get, yeah. <laughs> yes. I'm not going to say... No, no, no. Everybody in public life, and probably a lot of people not in public life, gets abuse on Twitter. Mm. It's, it's one of the downsides of that medium. It's one yeah. of the downsides of social media, but it is a, a tiny tiny minority of people who engage in that kind yeah. of behaviour and So mostly on Twitter you're actually mostly it's interacting positive, absolutely and people yeah. will disagree but they will do it politely, they'll do it perfectly yeah. civilly. I mean I've you know the theory which I I'm pretty sure is a theory shared by most people, the minority who'll abuse folk on Twitter have always been there. Yeah. It's just that they've not had the platform before that Twitter and Facebook gives them. So yeah. You know, we shouldn't get upset about it. I just ignore it and try not to read it. I'm interested in this communication thing because there's something that, that uh, a little thread that d- draws out, which is you're on Twitter. You, the parliament that you're in uh, is a kind of an accessible parliament in a way. It's a parliament that people come into. You've also been on this tour of the country. Uh, is it a year and a half of tu- touring, touring Scotland, doing meeting, meeting, yeah, meeting? Yeah, it must be. It must be about that. Although it's becoming more yeah. intensive the closer we get. And I saw that you were in Inverurie. I was in Inverurie and then last you were, week. And then to the Commonwealth Games on the same day, was that the...? No, I, I went from the Commonwealth Games to Inverurie uh-huh. and then back down the same night to go to the Commonwealth Games the next and morning. Now, two, two questions really. The first thing is, that was a packed house. Um, and is that common? Is that what yeah. you're experiencing? My experience of all of the public meetings I'm doing about the referendum are they're packed out, so... Attendance is defined and determined by the size of the venue. If it's a 
seater venue, you'll get 500 folk there. If it's 200, you'll get 200. And it's it's one of the wonderful things, you know, whatever side of the debate you're on, it's one of the wonderful things about it that there is a re-engagement in and politics. Are you, when you speak to those crowds, do you sense you're speaking to people who've come along because they're excited by the prospect of independence? Or, or are you speaking to people who may be no voters or may be undecided? It, it's a genuine mixture. I mean, my kind of rough estimate, um, and it varies from meeting to meeting, obviously, but you will get a fair chunk of committed yes voters mm-hmm. who want to come and, you know, hear somebody make the case. They might want to come to kind of get their own answers to questions that they're facing on the doorstep. So it's a bit of a, a sort of a education exercise for them. But you get a lot of undecided people. I, I reckon at most of these meetings, about a third to a half of the people there are undecided. Yeah. And then you'll get the committed no voters who just come along to noise you up a wee bit. And how do you, how do you speak? Because you, you're having to speak to people constantly mm. and they know who you are and they know what you stand for. So how, what do you find no voters say to you? No voters, I mean, the, the interesting thing I have found is that, yeah, I mean, you'll get no voters just as you will get yes voters. And, you know, I, I'm one of the group on the yes side that I'm about to talk about. Of course, you'll get no voters who are immovable. Mm-hmm. There's nothing you could say that would change them because they believe in yeah. what... The, and that's that's absolutely fine and, and legitimate. You, you won't convince me not to vote yes, yeah. so that's absolutely fine. But I've been genuinely... Uh, surprised at the number of people who will say that as things stand right now they intend to vote no but are not close-minded and they are open to persuasion and I've had a number of people you know quite a large number of people who come up at the end of these meetings who will say I came in as a no voter they won't necessarily always say I'm going out as a yes voter but they'll go out as somebody who's no longer a hard and fast no voter I mean, I suppose we're all undecided because we haven't made the decision yet. And yeah, well, I'm, I'm kind of not undecided. <laughs> I, I, I probably have to face up here. Um, David said to me, outside, he says to me, we've got a house... Well, it's kind of what he said to you at the outset. We've got a house rule here. We don't ask anybody how they're voting in the referendum. And I said, well... Because yeah. for me, it's always been a secret, of course, so that's really reassuring. <laughs> well, of course, it is a secret ballot. It is. And... Well, uh, perhaps you will be movable. I often wonder whether there's uh, a, a, a Labour MP who might just in the uh, in the in the quiet of I'm the polling booth, there is. yeah, yeah, change their mind. Anyway, I could probably name some of them, but I won't. <laughs> <laughs> oh, please do. Um, a, um, we're talking about binaries, and uh, you're talking to no voters. A lot of people, I know, a lot of people who say and uh, that they're turned off by when politics is yabu yabu. But I also understand that, to a certain extent, how can it not be yabu yabu? Because you have to argue the case. See, when you did the um, the TV debates, um, how did you how did you prepare for those, and what was your experience of them? Uh, TV debates, and I know somebody right now who's busily preparing yeah, for another yeah, one yeah, coming yeah. up soon. Um, you have to prepare meticulously for debates like that. You. You have to know your facts and your figures and your arguments inside out, and it yeah. takes a lot of time. And I suppose there's a, a you know, I, I don't want to kind of use adversarial language here, but the best way I can describe it, you've got to do your defensive preparation. You've mm-hmm. got to make sure that you can defend your case regardless of what questions are asked or what attacks are made on it. And then you've got your offensive preparation, how you want to undermine the other person's case. Inevitably, these debates are adversarial. That's how they're set up to be. Mm. You know, probably the my least favourite part of the the campaign to date has been that debate I did with Joanne Lamont, uh-huh. where I think if both... I mean, we have spoken about it. I think if we could turn the clock back, both of us would try to do that very differently. Whether we'd succeed or not, uh-huh. I don't know, because the way the debate was set up was designed to make it like that. I much prefer doing public meetings because I think you you can engage in a debate that is more nuanced you can get into arguments in a, a way that I think is much more about addressing people's genuine concerns than you can in the heat of a television studio when it's you know she says he says and it's yeah. you know everything is black and white I'm fascinated that 
that you say that about that debate because I do wonder how how do you have do you feel you have any control over tone uh, in a debate like that? You uh, y- yes, you, you you do, and you should do. I think I'm, I'm not having to go at STV here. You know they've. I think they've yeah. been fantastic in terms of leading the, the way with these debates, but that debate, you know, there, there was a decision taken not to moderate it. Uh-huh. Um, so the, the, the person that might have moderated uh-huh. it was deliberately not. So the, the, the difficulty you get into is if nobody's moderating, if nobody's refereeing, then if you stop talking, yeah. then yeah. the other person, you don't know that the other person will stop uh-huh. talking. So you're both scared to kind of give ground in yeah. case the other person just steamrollers over the top of you and, and then it just becomes it's, like I mean, that. It's obviously, it's one of the impulses behind this show, but yeah. it, it's something I, I, I would love to find environments where politics can be talked about that doesn't demand that. Uh, well, I think that's happening in town halls and school gym halls, the length and breadth of the country right now and at events like this. The thing I like most about doing public meetings as opposed to television, is you can have a debate about certainty versus uncertainty in a way that's not completely black and white. You know, I I find what starts to move people who will describe themselves as committed no-voters is hearing somebody like me saying, independence is not a magic wand. You know, there are no absolute certainties in life, regardless of how we vote in the referendum. What it is is a, an opportunity, and here is yeah. how I think it is an opportunity for good. But to admit that it doesn't, by magic, make all of our problems go away and lead to a better country, it's what you do with it that matters. And it's hard to have that kind of nuanced debate in the heat of the media glare sometimes. Do you, so do you think that that the, you, you sort of... Do you feel forced into certainty, in a way, by the... I, I, I guess, what, by media coverage? I, I think that has been, yeah, a factor of how the debate has been covered. Now, you know, it's it's always a an easy temptation on the part of politicians to blame the media. Yeah. We've all got responsibility for how the debate has been conducted and how it's progressed. But I suppose, I'm, I mean, I'm thinking of something quite specific, which is that if you thought to yourself... I suppose the question would be, how, how do you handle your own uncertainty, if you see what I mean? Because... <laughs> I'm imagining that if you were to say, oh, you know, I, I'm pretty certain about this, but about this policy or this idea, but, you know, at four o'clock in the morning, you, you must have moments where you go, is that right? Is that the right thing? These days, no, I'm fast asleep at four o'clock <laughs> in the morning. So. But I, I guess I wonder, how do, you, how do you handle that in yourself or, in, you know, in, in your political life? How do you handle I think, doubt? I think you can handle it. Or I think the way you should handle it and the way I try to handle it is the same way you handle doubt and uncertainty in your personal life. Mm. I mean, if if I was to say to everybody in this room to think about, you know, the big moments of decision in your personal life, you know, from, you know, going to university or getting your first job or changing job or getting married or, you know, moving house, there's always a part of you that thinks, am I doing the right thing? You know, what if it doesn't work out? You know, would I be better doing a different thing? But, you know, in your gut you know that it's the best thing and if you make a mistake you'll live with that and you'll learn from it but if you don't do it Mm -hmm. you'll probably spend the rest of your life regretting it because you'll have passed up an opportunity and you know there are no certainties in in this life we don't know the sun will come up tomorrow morning but I'm pretty certain it will and the best it's about how you best navigate and manage uncertainty and the best way in my view to do that is to be as in control of the factors that determine what happens as you possibly can be. I was, um, we asked the audience to, you know, explore what their doubts about their own side are. And certainly for me, I would love it if uh, Alex Hammond and Alistair Darling began the debate uh, uh, tomorrow night by saying, but Darling by saying, you know, I do want to stay in the union, but sometimes I think you'll be daft. And, you know. I'd like that too. <laughs> But and similarly, you know, I think I think I think the expression of doubt. I know it can't happen, but if it will be, I'll so, pass on the suggestion. Yeah, though. yeah. Okay, that'd be great. Watch this space. But so I was thinking, well, what's my fear? What's my doubt? What's my thing? And I think I'm, and I know this is shared by a lot of people, is narrowness of victory. 
I think that worries people sometimes. Uh, I think the thought of a 55% or a 60% yes makes people feel very happy and excited. But I think the thought of a 50.001% yes, for some people, even on the yes side, is quite a challenging thought because it... And I just wondered, what do, what happens if it's 50.001? Well, the law says the side that gets 50.001 wins the referendum and that's the result yeah. that uh, we carry forward. I hope that yes wins by a bigger margin yeah. than that and that's what I'm going to be spending all my time trying to uh, make sure happens in a few weeks time I think the important thing though is regardless of the margin of victory and regardless of the direction of the result the day after we all have to come together mm. and respect the democratic decision that has been taken respect the outcome of the referendum and, and move forward together now you know, we're all human those of us who have campaigned hard and who care deeply, and I think everybody cares deeply about the referendum from one side or another, you know, of course there's going to be disappointment on the losing side, there's going to be a lot of hurt feelings, but I think we've all got a responsibility and those of us who've been in leadership roles in the campaign have got a particular responsibility to try to very quickly lead things forward in a united way. That, that's why we've said you know, if there is a yes vote and we move into the negotiation phase, the negotiations have to be broader than the SNP and the Scottish Government. You know, they have to have people from the no side, from no side, from the no side and yeah, no, no side, side, Civic Scotland. It has to be a genuine yeah. Team Scotland approach to try to bring everybody together again. Brilliant. Thank you very, very much. Oh, one last thing. Do you think that your side will win? Yes. Uh, thank you very, very much. That was absolutely wonderful. Ladies and gentlemen, Nicola Sturgeon. Um, thanks very much, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you're still writing down your own uh, your, your pieces of paper on the scraps of paper. We're going to start collecting them in soon. I'd love to introduce now um, uh, the David Bowie poet for today, Tracy S. Rosenberg. Please come up to stage, Tracy Rosenberg. Hi, uh, thank you. Um, I had something clever to say and now I've forgotten it. Um, this uh, piece I wrote because the books editor of The List asked for people to write small, small stories about what you know, what they thought an independent Scotland would look like. And I've always been interested in history and what we remember about history, what we, you know, what the collective social memory thinks about, you know, all these little facts that somehow maybe never happened or, or why is that one that sticks in our memory. So I thought, okay, if we have a schoolgirl 100 years from now writing an essay, what are the bits that she's going to remember about what we're going through right now? And so that became... How the Wars of Scottish Independence Led to a Better Scotland by Fiona, age 10. There have been many wars of Scottish independence, but only in the last one did we properly win. The first wars were won by heroes, which is why we celebrate Robert the Bruce and the Wallace. We won at Stirling Bridge and also at Bannockburn. In these wars, everyone fought over Berwick, though no one knows why. The modern wars of Scottish independence came about because of a universal sense of dissatisfaction with how the English forced us to store their nu nuclear weapons but stole all of our oil out of the North Sea. Also, they mocked us for how we wore kilts and ate tea cakes, and when we played football, it was always disaster for Scotland. The main battle was the Battle of the Telly which happened when the traitor David Cameron told Archduke Salmond that an independent Scotland would not be allowed all of the BBC and we would never see strictly again, but only take the high road and rebus. This caused a great stooshy, and J.K. Rowling said that if Scotland became independent, Harry Potter would send the Death Eaters after us. Now we are independent, and we are a better Scotland. Europe let us back in, even though the traitor David Cameron said they mustn't. We have our own money, and the five-pound note has a picture of Lord Andrew Murray, and the ten-pound note has a panda riding in a tram. 
We watch whatever telly we like, and when I grow up, I'm going to dance on Strictly in a kilt. Next year, we will win at football. Thanks. Thanks very much, Tracy. Tracy, uh, Tracy was uh, uh, last night within three metres of Kylie, is that right? Three feet of Kylie dancing at the closing ceremony of the Games. I, I was enormously jealous of that. Um, <laughs> next, we've got uh, our letter from. Every day at Bowie's we get a letter from somewhere else. Uh, today's, we've got a letter from Australia. Van Badham, who wrote that, had a bit in The Guardian today about independence. Today, we have a letter, appropriately, from Berwick, which is going to be read uh, in person by Dan Bai, uh, playwright Dan Bai. Welcome. It's actually, it's, I've written it on my phone, so it's more of an email from Berwick. Uh, think of me as a sort of homage to the cybernats. Dear Scotland, we're in a relationship, you and I. It's been going on a while. It's not been going so well lately. And you're telling me you're thinking of leaving. And I feel pretty ripped up about that. But unlike every other version of this scene in history, I'm not making any promises that I'm going to change from now on. I'm writing this letter from Berwick-upon-Tweed, uh, and you could say it's stupid to write a letter and then carry it there in person in order to read it out loud, but, um, but words get misrepresented. Words like together, better. <laughs> I'm writing from Berwick-upon-Tweed because that's our shared border, and there's a fair chance that border's just about to change its meaning and when I first heard about this, your referendum, my reaction, like everyone else in the north of England, was to make a set of now familiar jokes about, can we come too, please? Uh, maybe just the northeast could come too. Uh, maybe us and Yorkshire and Cumbria. Uh, all right, Lancashire, fuck it. And Birmingham, Cornwall, South London. Basically everywhere except Chelsea and the racist villages. Can we come too? Please? Well, no, we can't. Um, only you get to do that this time. And although I'm genuinely really pleased for you, I'm also bloody annoyed. Uh, or more, more accurately, seething with jealousy. Uh, as a, a North East Englander, Englander, more specifically as a Teesider, I've always proudly identified as British rather than English. The governments in Westminster don't represent me any more than they represent you. I've got more in common with Glasgow and Cardiff, with the Duntu and the disenfranchised than with Chelsea and Westminster. And I've always sought a more all-encompassing identity as a result. But the thing is, you'll have noticed this, I am English. Uh, Britishness is a thing done to Glasgow and Cardiff and Belfast and Nairobi by the English. If it's not something you want, it's a violence that I do to you, even by using the word. I'm British, honest. I've more in common with you than with David Cameron. And that may be true, but I am English. Uh, and uh, claiming that I'm British just like you isn't helping anyone be honest with each other about who we really are. And if you win your referendum, I need to find a way of dealing with my Englishness, of making it mean something more to do with Sylvia Pankhurst and Gerard Winstanley and Watt Tyler and a lot less to do with David Cameron and Amritsa and... Hugh fucking Grant. <laughs> and if you don't win it, I've got to do that too. From where I'm standing, if your referendum achieves nothing more than having us all think a little bit more carefully about who we are in relationship to each other, 
then it achieved a great deal, a huge amount, although understandably from where you're sitting you might want it to achieve a bit more. Uh, we had a referendum on devolution in, uh, in the northeast of England ten years ago in 2004 and we fucked it up. Uh, our turnout was slightly more than 45%. Uh, you're on course to double that. Our yes vote was 20%. And this wasn't because the northeast of England lacks a strong sense of cultural identity. It wasn't because we feel represented by Westminster in a way that you don't. When I was nine, I sat in primary school and the school secretary stuck her head round the classroom door and said to the teacher, Mrs Price, Mrs Thatcher's resigned. And we all, nine and ten-year-olds, stood up in that classroom and we cheered. <laughs> We didn't know who she was or what we stood for, um, but what we knew was that our mams and dads hated her. Um, the reason that was lost was because the vested interests in control of the media succeeded in shutting down any debate before it happened. That isn't happening here. Uh, we were persuaded that we couldn't run our region. My mam said that she voted no because there wasn't anyone in the North East who was capable of running it. My mum, a woman who grew up in Middlesbrough, said this. There's no danger of that happening here. So to sum up, I'm incredibly jealous of you. You've got a chance of self-determination. You can run your own country. You've got an incredibly lively grassroots debate that has energised the entire country on both sides. Questions like the one you're, ones you're dealing with and debating as real and pressing don't get dealt with practically as anything other than abstract for the rest of us in our lifetimes. I doubt I ever will get a chance to think about this as real and pressing and concrete again. You're in an astonishing and privileged position. Don't fuck it up. Yours in solidarity, Dan. Thanks very much. That was, that was really, really lovely. Thank you. Um, uh, now, I wanted to collect in our doubts. Have you all written your doubts down, ideally on scraps of paper? Um, Lucy and Cora will be coming round and collecting them. We, we, we're actually... Does anybody own a David Bowie trilby? Because I want, we wanted to have a hat to collect them in. A sailor's cap. Fantastic. Can we use the sailor's cap? Um, the charity shops of Edinburgh have proved uh, um, unhelpful as regards the David Bowie trilby that we need for the, for the show. So if anybody knows of one, do let us know. What we're doing with these is um, every day we, we collect them in and every day we write, them, uh, we write them up in the Bowie guest book that we've got. And uh, our friends at the National Library of Scotland um, are going to take the Bowie guest book when we're finished. So all of these thoughts every day are going to be, um, are going to be uh, kept uh, for posterity. And I think that, as Dan said, this is an extraordinary moment and it's worth, it's worth capturing it. Um, just while that's been collected, I'll also do a few plugs. Um, tomorrow we have an absolutely fantastic panel. Uh, uh, the debate is the theme... Uh, Bevan tried to change the nation, whatever happened to the idea of Britain? Bevan tried to change the nation. Can anybody spot the song reference? Life on Mars. Uh, every, every Bowie has to have a, a, a David Bowie song title. So we're talking whatever happened to the idea of Britain. We've got James Robertson, Neil Asherson. It was Star. It's been corrected. Um, we've got uh, James Robertson, uh, uh, Neil Asherson, Isabel Lindsay, David Torrance, uh, and others, uh, and great musical guests as well. So please, please come along to the Bowie Yurt. It's different every day. Um, check out on the website to see if the theme is of interest to you, uh, and, and come down again. Uh, how long have we got? We've got five minutes. I'll just read out. Just, this is such a fantastic haul of thoughts, I'll just read out a few. So the sentence was, my doubt about my side is. 
my doubt about my side is a vote would a yes vote would mean abandoning the rest of the UK to a permanent Etonian rule. <laughs> my doubt about my side is ensuring pr pl plurality. My doubt about my side is there are people in, U in whatever the result, there are people in Syria, Iraq, and Ukraine and elsewhere who are not allowed to enter the democratic process. I think I've read that. It was a handwriting is a bit tricky. I'll read one more and then we'll have our final song. <laughs> my doubt about my side is Darling's eyebrows. <laughs> A, okay. Um, <laughs> uh, you've been a fantastic audience, so I'd love to welcome to stage our wonderful music today, White and Mackay. end up uh, this afternoon's entertainment with a little song about Scotland. Once Jim gets ready. You alright Jim? Right. <laughs> this song's called uh, We Country. Thank you. But it's no glamour, it's no glitz. Jock Thompson's on benefits in this wee country. Wee country. We're massive, massive. You're black or white, blue or green or maroon.
you. Thank you so much. I don't know if, if you saw David. He just popped in. He just had his eye around the corner there and he was singing along. It was lovely. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you to our guests, Nicola Sturgeon, John Carnican, Tracy S. Rosenberg and Dan Bai and to White and Mackay. Thanks very much and see you in the earth tomorrow. Thank you. Okay, so this is going to be a very long list of sentences uh, because there was a huge crowd, but I think it's really interesting and, and, and worth it, so stick with me. My doubt about my side is... My doubt about my side is I might be wrong again. My doubt about my side is whether we can truly deserve a second chance if we're given it to make it work together. My doubt about my side is nothing. Yes is definitely the right way. My doubt about my side is commitment to land reform. My doubt about my side is wrong. I don't have a side. I have so many doubts. My doubt about my side is will we get 60% yes or 65% yes? My doubt about my side is will our parliament really be better than Westminster? My doubt about my side is that we remain a monarchy when we vote yes. My doubt about my side is the Scandinavian dream. Bowie is better than Roxette. My doubt about my side is the rise of far-right parties in an independent Scotland. My doubt about my side is it's a mistake. My doubt about my side is that we'd be intimidated by being proud, taking personal responsibilities for our mistakes without blaming Westminster. My doubt about my side is that we won't be allowed pandas. My doubt about my side is more Trumpton riots. My doubt about my side is a descent into nationalism and an inward-looking culture. My doubt about my side is Salmon's weakness for psychotic billionaires like Trump and weak journalism, and that won't challenge it. My doubt about my side is what has two legs and bleeds half a dog. My doubt about my side is Darling's eyebrows. My doubt about my side is ensuring plurality. My doubt about my side is that a yes vote will mean abandoning the rest of the UK to permanent Etonian rule. My doubt about my side is they become too abrasive, nearing the vote. My doubt about my side is Blair Jenkins. My doubt about my side is no doubt. My doubt about my side is too many people want to vote yes but are scared to do so. My doubt about my side is do I look fat in this kilt? My doubt about my side is commitment to music education. My doubt about my side is that a Scottish government will swing to the right once elected. My doubt about my side is Westminster not playing ball if we get yes. My doubt about my side is maybe too positive all the time. Sometimes they need a kicking. My doubt about my side is we'll miss the chance to abolish the monarchy and reform land ownership. My doubt about my side is nout. My doubt about my side is too good to be true. My doubt about my side is not enough yes supporters are being active. And if we don't win, we will be unable to forgive them. My doubt about my side is whether there is really an alternative to neoliberalism and we can make it work. My doubt about my side is a fear of failure. My doubt about my side is if we get a yes vote by a small majority, there may be a lot of tension in the country arising from people who don't want it. I worry that tension may overshadow the work of just getting on with making progress. My doubt about my side is even with a yes result, we may not be able to eradicate neoliberalism. My doubt about my side is that a yes vote may be narrowly defeated. My doubt about my side is non-existent. My doubt about my side is Blair Jenkins. My doubt about my side is the central belt of Scotland will distort Scottish economic and cultural life, just as the London conurbation distorts UK economic and cultural life. My doubt about my side is we won't win. My doubt about my side is negotiations will take longer than expected. My doubt about my side is not enough appeal to the heart and gut as opposed to the mind. 
Well, not about my doubt about my side is they're not rude enough to the no campaign. My doubt about my side is they're not being brave enough to convince the undecided. My doubt about my side is it may fuel bad things about nationalism. My doubt about my side is I'm only on it because I'm English and I desperately need you Scots to dutifully elect 50 non-Tories to Westminster every five years. Sorry. My doubt about my side is that yes won't lead to the social change I want to see. Most, more of the same would be heartbreaking. My doubt about my side, can we be federal or federalist? My doubt about my side, can we keep the momentum going? My doubt about my side, that we won't win and the no side will be unbearable. My doubt about my side, can the left realign? My doubt about my side, how would the negotiations post yes work? My doubt about my side, they'll win by too big a margin. <laughs>